Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Epiphany's Podcast, a ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. For more information about our church, you can visit epiphanyligonier.org. You know, it's not every day that your Bible study podcast has a content advisory on the front end, but there's really no way around the hard R, maybe even X-rated nature of the passage we're going to study today. Um, So let's never say that the Bible strays away from the difficult realities of any time period, ancient or modern, including the reality that human beings regularly miss God's mark when it comes to matters of sexuality. And we're about to study one of the most explicit texts in the whole of the Bible. And as a pastor, I'm going to try to lead this study with three goals in front of me. First, I'm going to discuss this adult R-rated Bible study by using, as often as I can, proper and medical language for humans who are engaged in sexual activity. There's just no way to talk about the content of our passage using euphemisms or innuendo. Uh, It's not adult to do that, and it doesn't give the Bible its justice to, to do it that way. And so uh, there is some language in this podcast that's going to cause you to blush, and I can assure you it's causing me to blush on the other end of this microphone as I teach from this passage in Genesis to you today. The second thing I'm going to try to do besides using proper medical language and and, uh, official language for human sexual activity, the second thing I'm going to do is address these matters with a lighter touch, you know? We as Christians believe that God gave us the gift of sex and that um, it fits within Genesis's understanding of creation uh, to talk about sex and understand it as something that was built into the fabric of creation as ultimately good. You know, our understanding of, uh, behind human sexuality is that it's a gift and it's good. And it, it exists on three levels that the Christian understands human sexuality in a threefold way. That sex exists as the mechanism for having kids and fulfilling God's desire that we um, fulfill the earth uh, and to grow and to multiply. Again, that's Genesis 1 language. Um, and so uh, we also believe that God gave us sex um, uh, for human beings to enjoy it. That it's a, a gift built into the fabric of our biology by our creator. Um, and in a mystical way that might make you blush, you know, sex is meant to reflect the goodness of God. And then what God's people do, what God intended in our sex lives, it's an act of worship and celebration that we're creatures uh, creatures created by a loving God. And so God is pleased, I think, that we are being faithful to our original intent when we have um, proper sexual intimacy with our partners. And so to boil it all down for you, we're not going to say that sex is bad. We're going to say it's a good thing. And uh, to make it simple, we might say that sex is for procreation, it's for recreation, and it's for celebration. Um, That's a Christian understanding of what human sexuality is about. And that when it's embraced as a gift from God, we can experience sex on all three levels. And the third thing I want to talk about today is that um, when we take sex and make it a taboo topic, um, we cut people off from an avenue of grace um, that's present in scriptures, and we cut them off from a divine healing. Um, and so I want to address these matters uh, with an eye for healing in mind because Scripture is is clear that part of what makes uh, sin thrive is darkness. 
Um, as some 12-step programs say, we are only as sick as our secrets. And so when we only engage with the reality of human sexuality in solitude, whether we're sort of chatting quietly with uh, confidants behind closed doors, or whether we understand human sexuality through, you know, um, private Google searches, uh, we miss the chance to confess our sins and to be seen and to have the sins brought forward into the light and healed. Um, that's what St. James says, that we confess our sins as part of our healing process. And of course, we do so in a manner that's age appropriate and gender appropriate and audience appropriate with all manner of wisdom, you know. Um, that's why there's going to be an E on this podcast, an explicit symbol, so to say, hey, this is 18 and up material here. Um, but to completely ignore a section of scripture because it deals frankly with human sexuality is to miss out on an opportunity for some of our brothers and sisters to experience an inner spiritual healing and restoration from what they've been through in the past. And so that's what I hope to do with this introduction and with our reading today. It's a frank Bible study of a passage that involves human sexuality, acknowledging that it exists, acknowledging um, that we do best to talk about it without innuendo or euphemism, uh, and to do so with an acknowledgement that sex is fundamentally a gift from God. And if that's something you aren't interested in, feel free to move on to another podcast. This is, again, an optional exercise uh, for your listening pleasure. And again, if you're um, you know, under the age of 18, uh, first off, welcome to church. Uh, but also, you know, this is not the conversation for you. The, the, there's a joke that the book of Genesis is meant for people aged 30 and up, and the old ancient rabbis of the Hebrew people would not, you know, crack open the book in its fullest until you hit age 30. But if you can stick with me in this conversation, I think we're going to see that God's faithfulness extends in the midst of our broken sexual experiences because that's what's going to happen in our text today. And so take a few seconds and say a prayer. And if you're ready to dive in, keep listening. If you're not, you know, again, consider that you yourself advised accordingly because we're going to take a look at the infamous story of Judah and his daughter-in-law Tamar from Genesis chapter 38. And we'll discuss why this reading even exists in Genesis, uh, but we'll also look and see if it points us to something better than, than the tragedy that it presents. We're wondering how this particular passage might point us to the Christian gospel. And so, you know, take some time to pray and do what you need to do to figure out if this is a, a good thing for you to experience or not. And uh, we'll get started with our reading in just a moment here. Reading from Genesis 38, verses 6 through 26. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground, so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and so he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared he, Shelah, would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, of the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went into Timah, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, Your father is going up to 
Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, What pledge shall I give you? And she said, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her. And she conceived by him. And she arose and went away, taking off her veil. She put on the garments of her widowhood. But when Judah set the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to, back, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who is at Anayim at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been there. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man whom these belong, to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. The word of the Lord. At first, you might think our Bible reading seems out of place, because this story of um, a man named Judah and his daughter-in-law Tamar takes place right in the middle of the story of Joseph. You know, Joseph 37 is the story of Joseph being carted off into slavery, and Genesis 39 is the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. These are two stories that we have been going through at Epiphany. We worked over them a couple of weeks ago in church. And in between them is a story featuring the sexual brokenness of another one of Jacob's sons, son number four out of 12, a man named Judah. So the Bible seems to veer off on a Judah rabbit trail in the middle of Joseph's story. But if we follow those rabbit trails and view them as important, I think we're going to see that God has something in particular he wants us to see in the rabbit trail as we're making our way through the story of Joseph. So let's study uh, this passage. Let's take a look at the story of Judah. Again, son number four out of Jacob's 12 sons. The text tells us that Judah was a man capable of taking care of himself. At a young age, you see uh, Judah struck out from his family to seek his own fortune, raising his own flocks and living a somewhat independent life. He was not a failure to launch, as they call it these days. And Judah eventually marries a local Canaanite girl and has three sons. And the eldest son marries another Canaanite woman named Tamar. And so to help you with the story today, those are really the three names. uh, These are the characters you really need to know uh, in our story. You need to know about Judah. uh, You need to know about his three sons. And you need to know know about Tamar. 
So Judah, three sons, and Tamar. And sadly, this is not a wholesome family situation. Uh, The text tells us that Judah's eldest son, the one married to Tamar, is a particularly wicked guy. So wicked that God strikes him down and kills him. I mean, we don't know the exact nature of his wickedness. Did the eldest son named Ur, did he he kick puppies? Uh, Did he steal from the offering plate? Did he run over an old lady while she was crossing the road? I mean, we, we just don't know. But God's smiting action leaves Tamar a widow, childless, with no one to care for her. And this is the ancient world, right? And we've discussed this a number of times in our series in Genesis, that it's not good that this is the case, but this was the case at the time, that widows were seen to be on the bottom of the cultural totem pole. Uh, Women don't work in this culture. Women didn't have jobs. Women were either uh, homemakers or parents or prostitutes or spinsters. Those are your real um, suggestions if you're a woman in the ancient world. Those are what you would do with your life. These were the roles that ancient women were expected to play. And so there's this custom in the ancient world uh, to help women out when they die childless, to keep them from becoming spinsters and to keep them from becoming prostitutes. And the tradition was this, that a widow's brother, um, a widow's brother-in-law, the deceased husband's brother, would sleep with his widowed sister-in-law until that widowed sister-in-law became pregnant and had a child. And that sounds awful to us in 2021, uh, but in the ancient world where love and sex weren't nearly as interconnected, this was actually seen as a blessing because it provided children who would go up and t- grow up to take care of their mother in their old age, right? And this is another thing we've talked about. Remember, kids in the ancient world are like a social security system. When you're too old to work, your kiddos will be the ones to take care of you. And so that sixth commandment, you know, honor thy mother and father, that wasn't just there to make small children behave and put the fear of God in them. Um, It existed to help establish this community retirement system uh, when people were of a retiring age. And so when Judah's eldest son dies, um, he commands his second son, whose name is Onan, to go perform his culturally expected duty and impregnate his sister-in-law. Again, it sounds icky to us, but at the time, that's what you did. Um, But Onan, you see, has other ideas. Here's what the text says. But Onan knew the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground, as so not to give offspring to his brother. We're going to talk more about that in a bit, um, Lord help me. Um, but there's a lot more to this text that meets the eye. Um, the first thing we need to know is that Onan knew the offspring would not be his. And there's a lot wrapped into that sentence because as it stands with his big brother dead, um, things are looking very good for brother number two's financial prosperity, right? So son number one has died, and this is son number two doing his due diligence as um, the surviving brother-in-law trying to have a, a kid. And he's number two of three. Um, But that's how it used to be. He was number two of three. Now he's son number one of two sons. And again, we've talked about ancient inheritance law before. And so to remind you, when a father dies in the ancient world, the eldest son gets a double portion of the inheritance. So the original plan was that when Judah died, his estate would be set, uh, broken down into four parts. The biggest brother would get two parts, and then the other two brothers, sons number two and three, would each get one quarter of what is left. But you see, the eldest son, well, the eldest son has now died. 
And so now Onan gets a promotion, as it were. Uh, Onan gets promoted. Son number two gets promoted to be son number one. And because he gets to be son number one, he now gets a double portion of the family inheritance. So the calculation changes. Onan, instead of getting one-fourth of the property, he now gets two-thirds of his father's estate. And his little brother only gets a third. And if the numbers are too much for you to, to, to follow here, here's a summary of what I'm talking about. Financially, the death of his elder brother is a total windfall from Onan. He goes from inheriting a quarter of the family fortune to two-thirds, 25% to 66%. This is a huge leap. And so things are looking good for Onan in his future. He is rising in his stature. He's going to get a lot of money when his father dies, except his father says, do your duty and sleep with your sister-in-law. Because Onan knew the offspring would not be his. That if his sister-in-law has a child, that child fulfills the inheritance gap for his dead father. And so Tamar's child, if she does conceive and have a kid, functionally takes over as the eldest brother, as son number one in the family. And so if Tamar has a child for the purposes of inheritance, Onan is demoted back down to being the second child. He goes from inheriting 66% of his father's wealth to only inheriting 25% of his father's wealth. And so we're meant to see Onan's actions in our reading as financially motivated. That's the key concern in our reading. Um, The good and right thing to do, according to the ancient world, was to provide for his sister-in-law a social safety net so she didn't end up impoverished and left to be a prostitute. But instead, the text tells us this. Whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And the exact mechanics of what he did aren't laid out in any detail here. But it's enough to say that Onan actively sought to prevent conception with his sister-in-law while being regarded as someone who was at least trying. Um, that On the outside, he was putting on the front, yes, I'm doing my cultural duty, but in private... Um, he was actively seeking to prevent conception. Again, the mechanics of exactly how he did that aren't present here, but we know um, that he was actively denying his sister-in-law a future. He was actively denying his sister-in-law someone to take care of her in her old age because he wanted his father's inheritance for himself. And so the text tells us that this is such a wicked thing that God punishes him for death as well, right? Um, And what he did, what Onan did, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. And so now two of Judah's sons are dead, and there's only one left. And Judah the father is kind of spooked here. He's at a loss because two of his sons are dead. One is still a boy. Again, Judah is looking for answers. He's lost two of his sons back to back. And while it's clear to us, because the text is telling us that God is the one responsible for this, Uh, That's not the conclusion that Judah comes to. Judah begins to blame Tamar. He thinks that there's something about this woman, Tamar, a curse, uh, ill intent, he doesn't know. But he knows that every one of his sons who has slept with this woman has died. And so maybe he's not excited to try and, and keep this woman in his family orbit. Maybe, you know, this third son of his, you know, technically now has a cultural duty, Um, But Judah isn't really interested in in weaving and keeping this woman in the fabric of his family. So he says to her this. Then Judah says to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. That's son number three is Shelah. 
until Shelah grows up, for he feared that Shelah would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. And so Judah, who has a cultural, moral, ethical obligation to take care of his daughter-in-law, sends Tamar back to her father's home, uh, promising to give her a, a husband when Shelah grows up. Except Judah has no intention of following through with this plan. Because Judah, again, he thinks this woman um, has in some way uh, killed two of his sons. There's something about her that has caused two of his sons to not to die. And that's total ignorance. The text says that it was God who killed these elder two sons for their wickedness. But Judah, he's got on his rose-colored glasses. He can't see that the two sons he raised were terrible men of, char- of poor character. That they were opposed to the ways of God. And so he transfers the blame onto Tamar. And he sends her back to her family with a false promise to return to her. And she remains a widow in her father's household, destined to become an old spinster and a burden to those who care for her, or perhaps maybe a prostitute if no one's there to care for her. And so let's put it all together so far. Um, Tamar has been the sort of victim in this story of a, a terrible mess of a family. Tamar, she didn't have much choice in the matter, but she did not marry into a family of you know, uh, high esteem. Husband number one is a sinner and God ends his life. Husband number two is also a sinner and so God ends his life. And the father thinks that the daughter-in-law is to blame, so he promises her son number three as husband number three, but doesn't deliver. Tamar did not marry into a particularly awesome family here. Judah, whose family is supposed to be linked to the creator God of the universe with um, all sorts of moral understanding at his beck and call, Judah's family, and Judah in particular, have done a grievous evil to Tamar. Uh, Judah has done a grievous evil to his daughter-in-law. Now, I want to pause a minute here in the middle of the the sermon, the the teaching, to discuss a couple of points of pastoral connection. And this is where I'm going to discuss a few things that may make you blush if you haven't been blushing already in this story. Because there are plenty of ways to miss the mark, uh, which is the Bible's word for sin, there are plenty of ways to miss the mark when it comes to putting together a Bible, uh, biblical understanding of sex. And this particular passage is fraught with a long history of bad interpretations um, that people in the early church, people in the medieval church, in the modern church, in the Reformation church, a lot of people looked at this passage and drew some very uh, incorrect conclusions about human sexuality. And I'm going to speak to you right now for reasons that I hope become clear because um, there are a lot of people who are wounded, have deep sexual woundedness, and I don't have an opportunity to take a Bible story and directly talk about that and connect it with people's sexual woundedness. And so I want to take that opportunity uh, briefly right now to talk about two bad interpretations of this passage. Um, So bad interpretation number one of this passage. Here's the first thing you should not do with this passage. If you come from a strict Roman Catholic background, or perhaps you had a more fundamentalist upbringing, the name Onan, which is the second son of Judah, may be very familiar to you. And many of you listening out there may have heard of the sin of Onan or Onanism. That's language that's often used in conservative Christian circles. And over the years, even though we are not given the explicit details of exactly how Onan wastes his seed, Um, This story has become linked to the practice of masturbation, particularly male masturbation. 
And I'm not going to spend any time today articulating a biblical view of masturbation. I'm not going to spend any time today going through that because there are a lot of God-fearing, God-loving Christians who believe that Jesus rose from the dead who have different opinions about whether that practice is acceptable or not. But in many Christian circles, the primary use of this text um, is to articulate that the act and practice of masturbation is something sinful. And, and, and that's one prominent interpretation of the text. And this text has also been linked to a second theological position that is a, sort of a uniquely Roman Catholic position, although it, you can find it some other places, which is this text has been linked to oppose any form of birth control. And the idea that Onan sinned by wasting semen um, is that God's intent for sex is that no opportunity be wasted uh, to conceive and give birth to life. And so to have sex without the intention of conception in mind, to have it only for fun, for example, um, is to not do what God designed for sex. And this is a dogma in the Roman Catholic community that produces very funny Monty Python musical numbers. Um, and we should also, you know, I think, give our Roman Catholic friends their due for a thoughtful, long-standing engagement with the theology of creation that most Protestants haven't even thought of whether or not biblical, um, what is a biblical understanding of birth control? I mean, that's not something we talk about very often. And I don't agree with the Roman Catholic position at all, by the way. I don't, I don't agree with the argument that all birth control methods are ungodly, but I'm going to give them a ton of credit for actually thinking about this this way in a way that Protestants have not. But that's a second interpretation about this text, is this text is um, a text based um, that a theology of anti-birth control is based upon. And I explain all this to you to say that I have met and I've con I continue to meet so many people who live in quiet shame and guilt because of these two interpretations of Genesis 38. I have met evangelical teens who live in quiet fear that their sin of Onan was proof that they weren't saved. I have met the fire uh, and brimstone preachers who preached that message to the kids, calling their youth group uh, to levels of purity that they themselves, it turns out, don't abide by in their own private lives. I have met married, devout Roman Catholic couples whose marriages have deeply suffered because of uh, medical matters that prevented them from engaging in traditional sexual intercourse. And they felt as if their only option for romantic physical intimacy um, was off the table because it would be an affront to God. And so they just kind of went on and they were pseudo-celibate with each other for years on end. And I've even given pastoral care and counsel to a man who had nuns in his Catholic school mutilate his genitals so that he would not practice the sin of Onan. I'm here to tell you this morning that the sin of Onan, as outlined in our text, um, has, has nothing to do with masturbation or the act of wasting its seed or birth control. I hoped that it was very clear the sin of Onan is that he explicitly sought to ruin his sister-in-law's future for financial gain. He purposefully resigned uh, her to a life of spinsterhood or maybe even prostitution so that he could improve his financial standing. Uh, Onan would be rich and she would die poor. And so God strikes down Onan, yes, but at the root um, of this smiting, as it were, the, the, the sin on hand is not at all sexual immorality. The root cause of was greed and disobeying his father and disrespecting his brother and resigning his sister-in-law to an imperiled future. Onan was a wicked guy, but it's not for the reasons he's famous for.
And so I hope this explanation of this story gives you some comfort if your past has been filled with sexual shame or hidden sexual secrets as well, because God certainly has a plan and an intent for human sexuality, but the human propensity to take the beauty of God's uh, vision and his laws and his plan and vacuum out any sort of grace uh, from the Christian gospel and then bludge each other with, bludgeon each other with this, this law, um, that remains uh, sadly a very common thing. And it applies to God's intentions here as well. So don't let me, don't hear me saying that God doesn't have a particular um, vision for what human sexuality should be like. But at the very least, take these two interpretations about birth control um, and and masturbation and and recognize that um, this isn't a story about that. And I hope that brings you some freedom and I hope that brings you some healing if that's part of your background. So let's continue on with the remainder of our story and see how it ends for Judah and his daughter-in-law Tamar now. The text tells us that some years pass between Tamar's return home to be with her family, and and she realizes that Judah is a cheat, that her father-in-law has left her behind. And she intuitively understands this is a great injustice. Um, Tamar knows this. And so when word gets to her that Judah, the man who owes her a future, right? He owes her not just a future, but a husband and a child— He owes her a lot and he hasn't paid up. When she gets word that Judah is returning to the area on a business trip, um, she executes a radical, bold, and desperate plan to get justice. And here's what she does. She took off her widow's garments and covered herself up with a veil, wrapping herself up and setting down at the entrance of Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. That's son number three, Shelah. Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a temple prostitute, for she had covered her face. Tamar would have been, in our reading today, she would have been in her early 20s um, as all this was taking place. And she was already wearing the traditional garments of a widow. But when she hears that Judah is coming by town, she dresses herself up as a prostitute. She covers her face and she sits at the place where prostitutes sit by the town gate and she waits. And sure enough, when Judah comes to town, he sees her. He assumes she's a prostitute, and he tries to make a deal. Here's what the text says. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you gave me a pledge, and she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, What pledge shall I give to you? And she replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. The signet cord staff that Tamar asks for, those are the tools of an ancient Near East businessman. Um, They're kind of like a driver's license or a passport or a business card or some other form of identification. She might as well have said, okay, I'll take your goat as payment here, but I'm going to hold on to your wallet while you go get it for me. And Judah assents to this. He gives her his his wallet and he unknowingly sleeps with his daughter-in-law. And the text tells us that Tamar conceives. And again, this is so odd and gross and foreign to us in the modern world. And, you know, frankly, in the ancient world, this is not a good situation either. Uh, But Tamar receives that which she is due. She gets for herself a child. And in fact, we'll find out later, she doesn't just get a child. She gets twins. And so she can raise these children into adulthood and someone will be there to care for her in her old age. In one unethical, questionable, deceptive swoop, Tamar receives that which Judah and his two sons denied her, a happy and a fortunate future. She gets what she needs to survive. 
And, well, um, well, we'll keep looking into that. I mean, can you blame her? I mean, maybe you can. <laughs> we'll keep looking. And that's the way things seem, right? That things turn out well for Tamar until three months later or so. Because uh, Tamar is now back to wearing her widow's clothes, her, her, you know, black Italian widow's clothes. But then she starts to get her baby bump. And the scandal begins to unravel. Tamar, the widow, has, according to everyone on the outside, disrespected her family and her dead husband by quote-unquote being immoral, as the text says. And the person who would have been grieved the most by her adultery, the person who would have had the most right to take revenge or to have justice, um, would be Judah, her father-in-law. He would have been the person to claim justice on behalf of her late husband's um, you know, marriage because, well, the husband's late. And so uh, now the father-in-law, Judah, um, is the one they say, hey, Judah, your daughter-in-law has been unfaithful. What are you going to do? And he loses no sleep on the matter, telling the messengers, bring her out and let her be burned. Burning, my gosh, that's a very severe way of being executed. And it's not just execution either. It's torture and execution, right? Uh, being burned is slow and painful. You know, the customary death for this sort of thing was stoning, which is awful, but, you know, it's quicker and a lot less painful. Um, and so uh, in this demand that Tamar be executed by, for adultery by fire, there's a we see a lot that's going on in Judah's spirit. The woman blamed for the death of his two sons, right? He blames her for the death of his two sons. This woman um, has brought tragedy in the family, he suspects. And this woman has now been unfaithful. Um, this woman caught in adultery, the one that he wants to not send his third son to to be married, even though he owes it to her. And so all of this anger and sadness and fear and grief, he's projecting all of this onto Tamar now. And her execution will be for Judah a revenge of sorts and a consolation for the loss of his two sons. Um, but Tamar, when she is brought out to be burned, the, uh, she brings the entire scandal to light because what happens? She produces for the crowd a certain signet and cord and staff, a certain ancient Near East wallet, some business cards, as it were, which she kept in her possession to prove the paternity of her children. And when she produces the ancient Near East wallet, the driver's license, the passport, the business card, to show the community who the father was, Judah is hit with a ton of bricks. He realizes immediately that the circumstances, um, he knows what's gone down. It, and it hits him all at once that the daughter-in-law, who he blamed for the death of his sons, was not innocent of impropriety by any stretch. But the scheme brings not just the, the, what she's done to light, but what he's done to light as well. Um, she used the visage of a cult prostitute, right? Um, and, and so there's an element of poetry in this because in the ancient world, because Judah had abandoned her, she might as well have become a prostitute. Um, and so her scheme brings it all to the forefront to say, because of you, Judah, because you had denied me a good heritage, I might as well become a prostitute. And Judah receives that message loud and clear like a brick to the face. Because what does he say when his own sins are made known to the public, when everyone puts two and two together? She is more righteous than I, since I did not give to her my son. He acknowledges it. He calls off the execution. He calls off everything. And he realizes that everything that's wrong with this situation, he is at fault. I mean, two people, two sins. Who is worse off? The woman who dresses like a prostitute to deceive her father-in-law into giving her a child to take care of in her old age, or the man who denied her the child in the first place. And Judah owns it. The text says that between the two of them, the woman becoming a prostitute, 
um, she is more righteous than he is. Not totally righteous, mind you, just simply a little more righteous than the man denying her a future. And so if I were to title this text, if I were to give it a, a subtitle, I guess, I might give it the title, The Humiliation of Judah. Judah, the fourth son of Jacob, the brother of Joseph. It's a lot of J's, but son number four, you know, Judah. He has his entire existence turned upside down in our reading today. His eldest son is so wicked that God kills him. His second son is also profoundly wicked, and God kills him. He blames the deaths not on the wickedness of his kids, but on his son's first son's widow, Tamar. And in spite and in anger and revenge, he refuses to fulfill his duty to provide Tamar with a future, denying her a good life and forcing her into a position of deep financial and social insecurity. And then he finds comfort after the death of... Um, his own wife by sleeping with a prostitute of a pagan religion because he assumes that she's a pagan prostitute and he goes and sleeps with her anyway. And it turns out that the prostitute was his daughter-in-law claiming a heritage for herself that her father-in-law had denied her. And then his hypocrisy and wanting to see his daughter-in-law burned for her adultery while he can visit a cult prostitute without any repercussion that's laid bare for everyone to see. And the whole affair is broadcast throughout the region and written in the Bible for everyone to see forever and ever. Amen. Can you imagine the shame? Can you imagine the humiliation to have your terrible parenting, your injustice uh, done to your daughter-in-law, your sexual indiscretions and your hypocrisy exposed for the world to see? I don't think it can, it can get more humbling than this for Judah, the fourth son of Jacob. So why interrupt the story of Joseph the dreamer with this tale of humiliation? Why do, um, why does the Bible, why is it structured in Genesis such that we read Joseph's story, Joseph's story, Judah's story, Joseph, 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 Joseph? Well, the first thing we're meant to read is that the sexual immorality of Judah's family, as evidenced by Onan and also Judah and also Tamar, um, we're meant to see all of this in opposition to Joseph's refusal to sleep with Potiphar's wife, which takes place in the next chapter. You see, Judah and his family are overcome with sexual indiscretions and failure, but Joseph, right, is not. And we're meant to see that the son who was sold away in slavery is more righteous than the ones who are left behind in any measure. Um, Judah represents the failure of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to keep their marriage beds in line with God's will for human sexuality. And Joseph represents something different. Joseph represents the divine power available to those who are not slaves of their libido. Judah and Tamar and Onan and Potiphar's wife, they all use human sexuality as a way to punish and control and get revenge on others. But Joseph, he doesn't play that game. And so we're meant to see that there's something special about Joseph. That's the first thing we're meant to see in our reading. The second thing is this. Judah is going to play a very important role in the story to come. Joseph may be in Egypt and his brothers may still be in Canaan, but that doesn't mean they'll be separated forever. And the circumstances of, of Joseph, the one who was sold into slavery, being reunited with the rest of his brothers, uh, Judah will soon become a key figure in what happens when that happens. Um, and when it gets to this place, what we're going to see is that Judah's humiliation is going to change his heart forever. It's going to kill off his pride. It's going to fill him with grief. It's going to break open within Judah a deep well of empathy that we don't see in very many Bible characters. Frankly, we don't see this well of empathy in people in 2021 either. And so the story of Judah, my friends, has not come to a conclusion yet. 
And we're going to get to that in a future week here at church when we get to Genesis uh, 44 and 45. The third reason um, this story exists, um, I want to conclude with maybe a, a good word, something to, to, to point you to a, a better word than just look at this family uh, completely enslaved to sexual indiscretion. And our reading concludes in Genesis 38 with the birth of Tamar's twins, Perez and Zerah. If you go to the end of Genesis 38, um, you'll find that uh, that um, Tamar has twins as a result of this, and they grow up and they take care of her, named uh, Perez and Zerah. And that's not the last time they're mentioned in the Bible, because you can fast forward all the way to the very beginning of the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1, where we discover that this case of in-law incest makes an unusual appearance, um, because um, in this moment... Um, the, the great lion of Judah, Jesus himself, well, this is his genealogy. These are his ancestors. Here's what we read in Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron was the father of Ram, and it goes on and on and on. And you get the point. But this wild and R-rated story is part of the good heritage that brings Jesus Christ into the world. Something like 39 generations before Jesus comes along, his ancestors are mired in a muck of sexual immorality and sin. And this train wreck of an X-rated passage is part of a long and winding domino chain that God uses to bring a Savior into the world. And so Jesus, you see, is going to be the one to to break the chain of broken sexuality and the shared bedrooms and all of the dysfunction we've read about in Genesis so far regarding the human libido. um, Well, Jesus is going to be the end of all that. And that, friends, is really good news because all of us, in one way or another, have a dysfunctional sexuality. We lust after the wrong people. We look at the wrong things on the Internet. Uh, We read the wrong books, and some of us may have sown our wild oats when we were younger, which is just another way of saying that our sexuality was out of control and we were overtaken by the idols of our libidos, you know. Um, Some people fear our sexuality because it was a source of shame in our younger years, and some people are deeply frustrated because providence has not provided for us a way to engage with our sexuality in a meaningful way. Many of us carry the scars from past partners who we bonded with physically but have since rejected. And so we are all, in many ways, the walking wounded when it comes to our sexuality. And to see God bring redemption in Jesus' name through something as broken as we read about today in our passage, well, maybe we can actually have faith that God can heal even the secret sins and the private wounds and the things we can't talk about around the children. And even though most of our images of Jesus Christ on the crucifixion include him wearing loincloths, It was very common practice for the Roman Empire to crucify their convicted criminals uh, in the buff without any clothes on. And so it's very likely that Jesus Christ, you see, was crucified naked. And we should see his crucifixion, uh, in his crucifixion, that his humiliation um, was complete and total, including the humiliation of his sexuality. Um, Which means, of course, that in his total humanity, including his sexuality, Jesus rose from the dead. Um, Jesus is not alien to the sufferings of our sexuality, and for that we can take great comfort. Um, And so, friends, as we leave Judah and Tamar behind for the rest of the story of Joseph, I want to commend to you the grace of God for our secret sins. They are not alien to Jesus. They are not foreign to God. 
Um, They are the very part of the fabric of creation which Christ will come to redeem. And the very parts of your spirit that are weighed down by the wrongs that have been done to you or the wrongs uh, that you have committed in your past, uh, friends, I'm here to tell you today that Jesus Christ is willing to bear those on the cross as well. Um, And so do not let the past, uh, whatever kind of sexual past you have, uh, keep you um, from coming to Jesus, uh, from experiencing a new sexuality, a redeemed sexuality, something that is profoundly better than anything the world has to offer. Um, And so in our reading today, friends, um, you can see that the ancestors of Jesus were completely taken aback um, and powerless um, by the lusts of the flesh. Um, But Joseph will not be, and neither will Jesus. And that, my friends, is good news. Because if Jesus Christ can save every part of the human experience, he can save your sexuality too. In Jesus' name, amen. Pennsylvania.